it is a, a gruesome passage of scripture. Uh, there is not really any way around it. It is just an awful, awful account. Uh, you know, we have gone through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Genesis, looking at the major uh, stories developing through the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we now find ourselves uh, going through and picking up the three incidents that are included in Genesis that are not a part of the main storyline. Last week, we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Next week, the... uh, Probably not next week. They're supposed to induce Colleen if she does not have the baby, so probably it will not be me next week. But the following week, um, it will be um, Judah and Tamar, uh, his daughter-in-law, and the illicit relationship there. And today, we come uh, to the abuse of Dinah. It is something where, I will tell you up front, in Genesis chapter 34, God is not mentioned. Uh, And as you read the story, you wonder where God is. Genesis 34 is a story without a hero. Everyone in Genesis 34 is a bad person. It takes place after God has wrestled Jacob to the ground, but before Jacob has gone to Bethel. So you remember that Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had fled. But before he left the land, he had promised God that he would come back and worship him at Bethel, the house of God. He'd gone away, he'd lived, he'd gotten married, he'd had children. Now he has come back to the land, and for ten years he lives in Shechem, down the road from Bethel. For ten years he lives where he does not belong. He avoids the house of God for ten years, and it causes destruction for him and for his family. You know, God has broken his spirit. He has come, and he's had his leg knocked out of joint by God, but he overnight does not become the man that he needs to be. And as long as he stays away from the house of God, he does not grow into the man that he needs to be, and we're going to see the disaster that that wreaks in the family of Jacob. Verse 18, And Jacob came to Shalom, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it Eloelohe Israel. So Jacob is in town, and he finds this pagan city in the land of Canaan, and he buys land just outside the city, within sight of the city is what the Hebrew says. I don't know about you, but that reminds me of our story from last week. You remember when Lot was given the choice between Abram and by Abram which direction he would go. Lot saw Sodom and he said, that looks just like Egypt. And he decided to go to the city. He was enticed by Sodom. And it cost him, his wife, really, it cost him his daughters, although we did not get to that part. Uh, it destroyed him because he was enticed by it. In the next generation here, Jacob thinks that he is wiser and thinks, well, I can live close to the city. He's saying, I can, you know, I'm not going to go live in this Canaanite city. I'm not going to go worship their gods. I'm just going to live just outside the city. The reason 
that the title of our message this morning is Flirting with Fire, is that when you get close, you get burnt. He is going here uh, nearby a large group of godless people where he is going to be enticed to be like one of them. Now, he had promised God, he said, if you bring me back safely, I will go and I will worship you at Bethel. But he does not keep the promise he made to God, and for ten years he camps out here with his family outside of Shechem. Now, I don't even know where to get started with this, but the immediate problem that we face is that if you don't keep your promises, you put yourself in a precarious situation. But it only gets worse. Verse 1 of chapter 34. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. At this point, he's only got one daughter. He's got 12 sons. He's got one daughter, Dinah. Now, Dinah is probably at this point about 15. And she goes into the city. We're going to find out by herself. Her brothers are out in the fields. She goes into the city by herself. Now, First off, they should not have been in the vicinity of a pagan city. Second off, where is her father protecting her from the things that are about to happen? Nowhere to be found. <laughs> you know, sometimes people say, you know, I just want a biblical family. Well, you need to be very specific about which biblical family you want, because there are a lot of awful families in the Bible. Jacob's family, the family that Jesus will ultimately come from, is one of the worst. You know why I believe that Jacob was not concerned? There is no reason for it to introduce her as Dinah, the daughter of Leah, except for the fact that Jacob had two wives. He had Rachel, who he loved, and Leah, who he did not. You remember, he was tricked into marrying Leah by their father. And so, not only does he play favorites with Joseph later on and get his own heart broken, but he plays favorites now. And he neglects his only daughter because she is Leah's daughter, and she goes into the city by herself. At most, 16 years old, but probably about 15, 14, 15. Now, she went out to see the daughters of the land. She wants to go out and socialize with these people. That was the wrong thing to do. But we are not holding a 15-year-old accountable for what happened. The Bible does not blame her. But we do see guilt on her father for sitting back idly and watching this happen, not protecting her, not helping her, not keeping her out of that situation. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, we've got an important, powerful man here, don't we, saw her, he took her, and lay with her and defiled her. Now, the word defiled is literally the word humiliated. He, wealthy, spoiled prince, sees what he wants and takes it. And now, uh, you know, I'm, I want to be sensitive to uh, what we have here and what we're looking at, but I'm sure many of you have seen the... Uh, reports in the news fairly recently of a, this uh, wealthy college student athlete who uh, did the same thing and has no consequences for it. Something like um, 80% of sexual assaulters will uh, never see a day in prison or jail. He sees what he wants, sees her, reaches out, 
takes her and humiliates her, which is obviously a euphemism. Now, this is bad in any culture, of course, but in their culture, where a woman's livelihood depended on being able to find a husband, and where virginity was sought out more than anything, this could guarantee her to a life of poverty as well as shame. There's the reason that later on the law uh, would include a provision that if her family uh, allowed it. So in Israel, the marriages were different uh, than we have today and also different than the ancient uh, cultures around them. In Israel, as we sort of piece it together, we find out that the daughter would choose her husband, uh, but that the father had sort of veto privilege. He would sign off on it or not. That's how it, similar to the way that today a man will go and seek a blessing. So not that different. From our culture. It was not where the father in Israel would just pick a husband for her wife, except in very rare, uh, for his daughter, except in very rare political type situations. In the case of Rebecca, for example, her father says, do you want to marry this man? And then he agrees to it. So in, later in the law, she and her father would be able to decide if they wanted to force the rapist to marry her and pay a, uh, a dowry, about triple the ordinary dowry. Uh, and then it was, he was never allowed to divorce her. It was illegal for, for him to divorce her under any circumstances after that. So later on, they had these protections in place legally uh, to really force the rapist to deal with the consequences of his actions. However, here we're not dealing with that. We're dealing with pagans. And so he is not under that kind of legal obligation that they would later have these kind of protections for. Those kind of protections that existed under the Old Testament in Israel did not really exist in any other ancient culture uh, to that extent of forcing some kind of protection. But here, he just, you see the three phases of it. I'm sorry, the, the four phases. Saw her, took her, lay with her, humiliated her. Verse 3, and his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. Now we see this. He assaults her, and then he tries to sweet-talk her. Now, again, we do not have to look very far in our world to find these kind of things. A lot of times when you have this uh, spoiled person, they, they don't understand that what they've done is as bad as it is. There's a, a really, a, again, a, trying to be a, as respectful as possible. I think we look on the, the political scene, and you see the displayed out writ large in our culture today, uh, the two people running for the highest office in our land are both deeply and intrinsically tied up with this kind of behavior and the kind of power that makes them think there's no harm in it. I can just take what I want. He, as the prince of this land, takes her, rapes her, and then thinks, you know, now if I sweet-talk her, she's going to understand how lucky she is to have me. That's the kind of mentality that comes with power. And so it does. He says, you know, I really like you. It's a soul clave to her. And so he began to speak kindly to her. Now, again, you see this kind of thing uh, played out in abusive scenarios. What's the, what's the abusive husband do? 
He beats up his wife, and then he sweet-talks her. Repeat. It's up and down and up and down. So he here is the kind of man that you would be ashamed to have as your son. And you wonder, how does he get to be a son like this? You know, how, does, how did his father raise him like this? Shechem spoke unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. That word, get me there, is the same word that's translated took her uh, a minute ago. He says, go, I took her, now you go and take her as my wife. And what does his father do? Well, we don't see it until verse 6. But in verse 6, he's going to try to negotiate to get him as, to get her as the wife. Do you, know, you want to know how it is that Shechem became the kind of man who thinks he can just have and take what he wants? Well, that's what he was raised to do. He doesn't say, you know, Dad, I really like this girl. Will you please go talk to her father? He says, go get her for me. Go. Um, a lot of the things that people think are cute in little kids grow up into patterns of character that become very destructive. What you think, oh, is, oh, just, you know, look how cute she is throwing this temper tantrum. Look how cute he is being so demanding, bossing people around. You are building in patterns of mind and patterns of heart. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That cuts both ways. (laughs) If you train up a child to be a self-indulgent, self-satisfied person, they will be that when they are an adult. You just see the layers of family dysfunction in this story. You've got Jacob, who has the kids that he loves because of who their mom is, and the kids he doesn't love because of who their mom is. Some of you have seen that played out in blended families, uh, where you've got the favoritism for the biological kids, or even the favoritism for these certain kids. Um, I know a little boy who, um, I guess he's older now, but when he was... uh, Three or four, his parents had divorced, and his dad said, I hate you, I want to stomp your face, you look just like your mom. I know, I know this little boy. You think that doesn't happen, or that happens. So you've got these, uh, Dinah immediately in that. Then, you've got Shechem, who is in this level of dysfunction where he thinks he can just take whatever he wants, and it causes this massive mess. And, of course, you see the reverse order. And of course, you know, the, in the Bible, the, the marital act is designed to be a consummation of love and commitment where the two become one flesh. But here in rape, of course, he sees her and wants to consume her. He doesn't want to unite with her. He wants to possess her. And then the love comes after because he says, I like this. I want more of this. And he just figures what he wants, he'll get. And as far as his father's concerned, he's right. Verse 5, and Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. You imagine this father gets word back about what's happened. Um, What is not clear to us at this point is how that that word got back. You know, you think, well, maybe Dinah came back home and told her father what had happened. That is not the case. (laughs) Later in the story, we find out Dinah is still in the city. She, not only did he take her and rape her, he kidnapped her and kept her in the city. So the discussion that takes place here is all just a little bit uh, under that shadow. 
So he finds out what happens, and you imagine what a father would do. And now see what Jacob does. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. Jacob just waits on his sons to get home. Now, again, I, I, we don't know, but I cannot imagine if it had been Rachel's daughter, Jacob, waiting on his sons to get home to do anything. At the very least, he would have sent out. But here he is, so defiled, and this will not break him of that. We all know that until he thinks Joseph is dead, he is not broken of his favoritism. And the consequences we see in his family, the things we see his family do wrong, come from this, from the very start. You know, you say, well, my sin doesn't affect anyone except me. (laughs) You just haven't thought it through very far. Your sin is like a fire. What starts with you spreads and spreads and spreads. And you say, well, you know, I've been doing this. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they were telling me about something with their boyfriend. And I said, well, you know, that's not a good idea. And she said, well, we've been together for 15 months, and it's worked just fine for us. Oh, 15 months. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, Sin, when we sin, we're like the man who jumps out of a 10-story building and nine times says, it's all right so far, it's all right so far, it's all right so far. It's all right until it isn't. Sin, you may be able to avoid the consequences of sin for a long time. Jacob lasted for 10 years living outside the city until he dealt with the consequences. But once they came, boy, did they come. We know the little expression. Sin uh, keeps you longer than you want to stay, takes you farther than you want to go, and costs you more than you want to pay. That's exactly what happens here. So he waits. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out unto Jacob to commune with him. You remember, Shechem sent his father, and his father goes. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved because they were very wroth, because he had wrought folly in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. It says that his sons are just furious because of this... uh, Wrought folly. It seems so light in English, but it's actually, it means they've done this despicable thing, this unthinkable thing. His his sons are furious. What have they done to our sister? And so far you think, well, good, finally, somebody understands the gravity of the situation. Verse 8, and Hamor communed with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longeth for your daughter. I pray you give him her, give her him to wife. He says, look, my son loves your daughter. Won't you please let them get married? It seems to me he's leaving out some key information. Maybe he doesn't know if Jacob knows yet what's happened. Maybe he's just embarrassed and doesn't want to bring it up. But here he is doing his son's bidding. And again, how do you think his son became the kind of man that would do something like this? Because his father is the kind of man that would do something like this. Here, let me go clean up your mess. Let me go take care of it for you. The, one of the most exciting things uh, teaching at high school was the juniors and seniors whose parents would call to try to take care of things for them. If you're teaching your 18-year-old child that when they've got a problem, you're going to call on their behalf, I don't know what you're going to do next year, 
because their college professor is not going to talk to you. <laughs> but again, you, <laughs> you look at a lot of the problems in our society, and where do they come from? Well, they start young, and they just keep on going, keep on going. There's no personal responsibility. There's no anything except entitlement. But that's not new. It's very old. But the problem is, it builds on itself in layers. Every generation gets worse than the one before it until something comes crashing down. You know, I'm sure some of you have read uh, Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, where he talks about that. And where, why does that happen? Well, you have the, the Great Depression comes and rips away all these illusions of entitlement. But then every generation since then, it just gets a little worse and a little worse and a little worse again. And so the same kind of generational pattern happens here. Because they were not where God wanted them to be, because they were was convenient, because they did not have a proper model of the family, you have a mess. So he says, give him a wife. Verse 9, the father, though, has got more in mind. He says, make ye marriages with us, and give your daughters unto us, and take our daughters unto you. And you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade ye therein, and get you possessions therein. The father says, let's not just make this one marriage. Let's all intermarry. Let's all become one big happy family. Now, one, of course, we know that Israel is kind of unique. God had told them not to intermarry with people of other religions. The same thing as he tells Christians. He says, marry whoever you want, only in the Lord. The Bible does not know anything about interracial marriage. That's not something that's condemned in the Bible anywhere. The Bible does know something about interfaith marriage. It says, don't do that. Do not be unequally yoked with a non-believer. He says, Christians marry Christians. Non-Christians marry non-Christians. Other than that, marry who you want. Um, so, you know, I hate to, to be the one to say it. Some of us live under illusions. Uh, but there is no such thing as like a soulmate. Being married is not about finding the right person. It's about being the right person. As long as you think that being married is about finding the right person, then as soon as you find somebody else who's a writer person, you're just going to break your marriage vows and go do whatever you want. But that's not what the Bible calls. The Bible doesn't say, husbands, find a wife you can love. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. The Bible says for the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Love is a choice. Now, if there's somebody that you cannot imagine yourself choosing to love in bad circumstances, don't marry that person. But if you think that you're building everything on an emotion and that this emotion means that you are just knit together in heaven, then God's got another thing coming for you. So God had told them not to intermarry with these pagans that worshipped false gods. Uh, in fact, they probably worshipped um, gods like Moloch, who they sacrificed their children to, and lots of really gruesome things. He said, don't marry into that, or you're going to dilute the true faith, one, that Jesus would ultimately come from, and two, that is going to consume you. So this is very, very dangerous. Here, the promises that God had made that he was going to bless the entire earth through them are in danger if they intermarry here and become consumed by this pagan city. There's not that many of them. There's 12 kids, 13 kids, and the parents. They will not stand if they've been kind of assimilated into this culture. Christians cannot be assimilated into the world's way of doing things. You say, well, we're just going to kind of compromise. You know, I know the Bible says this, but... Let's just sort of adjust. I know the Bible says that uh, you shouldn't lie, but you know, sometimes you just have to lie. 
I know the Bible says that you shouldn't steal, but, you know, who's to say that I don't have 47 dependents when I fill out it on my taxes? You know, there's mice and roaches and all kinds of things. We've got to just get used to the place that we're living. If you have to sin to get used to the place that you're living, then maybe, like Jacob, you are living in the wrong place. So, he says in verse um, 12, uh, verse 11, I'm sorry, and Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, so the son's kind of there standing behind, let dad break the ice. You know. Then when he thinks it's going well, he decides he's going to chirp in. He says, let me find grace in your eyes, and what you shall say unto me I will give. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to, as you shall say unto me, but give the damsel to wife. He says, whatever dowry you want, I'll give it. Just let me marry her. Now, this is a little bit disingenuous because he is in her house inside the city. He's, she's in his house inside the city. This is not really a marriage proposal. A dowry, as a side note, a lot of people misunderstand it. There's two components, is dowry and gift. The gift was something that you gave to the uh, father because the loss of the daughter's work. Um, because the wife would always go to live with the husband's family and never the other way around, that you make this payment. The dowry was something different. The dowry was not for the father to spend. A lot of people assume that. The dowry was money that was kept so that if the husband divorced his wife or if the husband died, the father would have that money set aside to take care of his newly helpless daughter. Uh, and so it was actually a sort of a protection measure, which not really relevant to the story, but I think it's an important thing for us to understand, that in ancient Israel, it was not that daughters were property that were bought and sold. It was that they were helpless without a man to work the fields and different things. And so the man would have to pay kind of an insurance down payment that if he ever divorced this woman, she would not be left destitute because the father would have this down payment. It's a, you know, how often that worked the way it was supposed to in different things, we don't know for sure, but that was a protection built into the system. So he says, whatever you want, I'll give. And again, you see the spoiled brat thing, right? The solution must be money. If you're not going to let me marry your daughter, it must be because I cannot throw an extravagant enough wedding. It must be because I'm not rich enough, or I'm... It just, you know, again, it, it seems to be hard-baked into our society today. And if you don't believe it, just go turn the news on. That people think if they have enough money, they can do whatever they want. Sometimes they're right, unfortunately. But I'm reminded of... I know I've told you before about my... Uh, a man who's a police officer that I know who was saying he had quit writing DUI tickets for a while because he just got so discouraged that you could have somebody falling over and if they could afford a lawyer, they could get off. It's incredibly destructive. And that's exactly the attitude that we see here. It goes on here in verse 13. And the sons of Jacob... I say, Jacob is still silent. I don't know what you say about the father who is silent in this situation, but it's not good. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, deceitfully, and said, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. It says, they deal deceitfully because of what he'd done to their sister. 
And they said unto him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised, for that we were a reproach unto us. But in this will we consent unto you, if you will be as we be, that every male of you be circumcised, then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. He says, look, the sons of Jacob, her brothers, say, look, we won't just let her marry you. We won't intermarry with you unless you've been circumcised. Now, of course, all the Jewish boys were circumcised when they were eight days old. It was the sign of the covenant. Now, just being circumcised, though, let me back up. Being circumcised was necessary to become a Jew. If you were a Gentile, to convert to Judaism, you had to be circumcised. But being circumcised did not make you a Jew. So what do Jacob's sons here do? They ignore the faith that is required to convert, and they say, just do this thing on the outside. They've made a mockery of the covenant. They have taken what God gave as a seal of faith and turned it into a tool to do what they want to do. We don't know what they want to do yet, but it already said they're doing something deceitful. Now, again, when we consider in our world, there's lots of examples of this. Um, How many politicians are there? It just seems to be such an easy spot today. Who claim Christianity only as a tool to advance their campaign. Good luck counting. How many uh, people are there who baptize babies and different things without those children having any faith? They have the outside sign without the inward change to market. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any more good than circumcising them. How many people are there that, you know, use faith healing as a way to make money? See, I believe that when you pray, God can answer your prayers and that he does miraculous things. But when somebody goes around as a charlatan, making their living, getting a jumbo jet and different things by healing people, they are taking the sign of God and turning it into a profit-making endeavor. When somebody takes God's symbol, the good thing that God gave, and they use it to accomplish their own personal ends, that is the lowest depth of hypocrisy. That's how low Jacob's sons have sunk, is they're willing to use the faith that God has given them as a tool to advance their revenge. Now, that's wicked. It's extraordinarily wicked. So, we come now to verse 17. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And their words, please, Tamor and Shechem, Tamor's son. And the young man deferred not to do the thing, because he had delight in Jacob's daughter, and he was more honorable than all the house of his father. He wants Jacob's daughter. Everybody else does what he wants. That's his life. So it's done. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came into the gate of their city and communed with the men of the city. They come together and they gather the men at the gate. Um, it was a walled city. Archaeology says that this city had sort of small walls at the time. It was just a very small city, uh, maybe 40 or 50 men uh, or less. So just, just a little small city at this time. Later, it'll be built up more uh, throughout history. But they gather the men in the gates. That's where they had these kind of discussions and said, these men are peaceable with us. 
Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade therein, for the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. The men of the city say, look, if we will marry into them, there's so many of us, we're going to consume them. They leave out a very important detail of what got all this started. But they say, look at all the money we're going to get if we will just go along with this little religious thing. Everything they have is going to be ours. We find out their motivation was to consume the people of God and absorb them into themselves. I told you, there are no heroes in this story. We keep waiting for somebody to do something good. But you've got the rapist, his enabling father, and their greedy city. And then you've got the deceitful, hypocritical sons and the father who doesn't do anything. See, the the foundation of a society is the family, and when the family is destroyed, there is nothing left. There is no hedge against against destruction once the family has been eroded. So they go in verse 24, and Hamor and his... And unto Hamor and unto Shechem his son hearkened all that went out of the gate of the city, and every man was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. They think that they're going to do this to consume Israel. Verse 25, And it came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. Why did they have all the men be circumcised? So that they would not be in fighting shape when they came and killed them all. All the males is not all the males is in the little baby boys. It's uh, the men, all the men of the city. Kill. Now, later on, uh, there would be, you know, in wartime, killing all the people in a city is one thing, you know, in a battle. Telling all of them that you're going to marry them if they'll just be circumcised so they will be helpless when you come in and massacre them all is a very different thing. They used the sign of the covenant for murder. The people of the city tried to use the sign of the covenant for financial gain. The sexual act being the sign of the marriage covenant, Shechem used for dominance and power. Every good thing that God has given has become a tool for the advancement of personal gain. And if you cannot find a mirror image of that in our society today, well, I just, I just let you think about it. Every good thing God has given, we try to turn into a tool for ourselves and make a mockery of God and everything about it. The land that God gave to Jacob, he uses to flirt with fire, and they all are consumed by it. This bloodbath, you know, they, they slew Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, 
and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. I told you, she'd been kidnapped the entire time. There was no real negotiation here. They take her and rescue her and kill everybody else. Now, maybe it goes without saying, all of the other men of the city did not rape their sister. But in their blind rage, they take it out on everybody. And I say their blind rage. You notice they waited three days to make sure everybody was circumcised, but before they had time to heal. I looked it up in the medical literature, and there's a, about a two-week period. And the, between the third day and the fifth day is the worst time for an adult who's been circumcised as far as the, their inability to do things. They knew exactly what they were doing. They waited until the people were vulnerable, and these two men came in and slew probably 40 or 50 men who were in their houses helpless. Now, it, they, there's, a little bit of, there's a little bit more to it, isn't there? Verse 28, they took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives took they captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. They go in there for greed, but they decide, well, there's all this stuff here. We better go ahead and take this while we're here and leave the city empty. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, here, finally, the father, finally, Jacob is going to rise up and do the right thing. He's going to be a bold leader, right? And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. Jacob is not concerned about his daughter. He is not even concerned about the fact that his two sons are mass murderers. He is concerned about his own skin. This is not the same man who we read about in chapter 33. He has spent 10 years flirting with sin, and it has slowly eroded his character. He has been avoiding fulfilling the promises he made to God, and I'm sure he had plenty of excuses. And as a consequence, it's now helpless. And they said, should he deal with our sister as with the harlot? And that's the end of the story. There's nothing else. You look and you say, well, what, what happens now? Of course, now God says, you need to get on to Bethel. You can't stay here anymore. God uses their sin to drive Jacob to where he should have been all along. But God does not approve of it. I told you in chapter 34, God is not mentioned at all. The only thing that comes close to mentioning God is circumcision, where they, where they take something religious and make a mockery out of it. But God is still here. When the, Moses, writing this down hundreds of years later, chooses not to include the name of God, he speaks by showing God's disapproval of the entire thing. When Jacob and his sons do not consider God when they decide how to respond, God speaks about the dangers of living without him. When Jacob chooses to be far from where God intended for him to be, God speaks about the dangers of the consequences of going your own way. 
when they go and they murder all the people, God speaks because he shows when we try to take things into our own hands instead of trusting God, it will leave nothing but destruction in its wake. It's a terrible story. I wish it wasn't in here, but it is, so. It tells us several things. One, the depth of human depravity. Even God's people are capable of sinking to incredible lows. Here they sink to murder, deception. The other people sink into sexual sin. Once you get close, you cannot control it anymore. You cannot control an explosion. Once you've let it get that bad, once you've flirted with it, there is no longer anything in your power. You can choose your choice. You cannot choose your consequences. Once Jacob had chosen to dwell just outside the city, once he decided to disobey God, where that went from there was out of his hands. And it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. If you don't think that's true for you, one, the depth of your depravity, that you are capable of, in the wrong circumstances, doing all kinds of terrible things, you don't know your own heart very well. Two, if you don't know that when you refuse to do what you know God wants you to do, that it is going to leave you vulnerable to all kinds of trouble, then you don't know yourself very well, or your life very well. There is, really, no hope in this story, except for the fact that God used it to get Jacob where he belonged. But I do see a very interesting thing here. As we look, this is going to be the the last little remark here. As we look here in verse 25, it came to pass on the third day. That is very interesting to me. They thought that they were going to use this circumcision to consume the people of God. But on the third day, the people of God used it to consume them. Now, this was a mess, it was sinful, it was wrong the way they did it. However, if we fast forward 3,800 years, or no, 1,800 years, 3,800 years of Genesis today, if we fast forward 1,800 years, we come to where all the forces of Rome, all the forces of false religion, and all the forces of hell thought they were going to overcome Jesus by death. And on the third day, that very death was how Jesus overcame them when he rose again. There's hope. If God can take those wicked people, if he can take Jacob and Jacob's sons, and he can change their hearts and turn them into the founders of the nation from which Jesus would come, then if you will recognize that depth in your own heart, God will change you. If you, as a Christian this morning, if you've already been saved, that you already had a moment where you knew you were a sinner, your only hope was Jesus, and you asked him to forgive you and change your heart. If you've already had that happen, but you've been living far away from the way you promised God you would live, then just as God finally pulled them to Bethel, God can take you to where you ought to be. The question is, are you willing to go? What promises have you made to God that you've never fulfilled? What things do you know you're supposed to do that you've never done? 
What depth of evil in your heart have you allowed to fester and flirted with that now you know are on the brink of getting out of control? The challenge to you this morning is very simple. Look in your life. Look where you are. And look where you have told God where you'll be. And close that gap. You say, Lord, I know that I promised you that I would be saved someday. I just, you know, I'm a, I think I'm a good person. I think I'm, <laughs> you've got all this evil festering in your heart. See, I knew I would promise that I would give my life to God eventually. God says, will you this morning say, I know that I've been a rebel against God, but I believe that Jesus was punished instead of me, and I want to ask him to forgive me and save me. If you do that this morning, you'll change your heart. If you've already been saved, but you've been living wandering far from God, not doing the things you know you ought to do, This morning, you just bow your head and you say, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned. Help me to get back on the wagon. Help me to get back into doing the things that I ought to do in your service before it destroys me and everybody around me. It's not too late because all of you can hear me. It would be too late if I went down and preached this at the cemetery, but you're all here. You've all got a choice to make this morning. We're going to stand and our musicians are going to come forward and we're going to have a hymn of invitation and give you a chance to respond this morning. Won't you step out and say, you know, I want to try.